Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anna Nupadier, and thanks for joining us. Today's episode is with Eva Shang, CEO of Legalist, a tech-enabled litigation finance firm with $150 million of assets under management. Legalist uses tech and sophisticated analytics to source and underwrite legal investments, mainly for small and medium-sized claims. In this episode, Eva talks about her entrepreneurial background as a Harvard dropout, first-time founder, and now a leader in a fascinating niche in the legal industry. We discuss the nuts and bolts of how litigation funding works, its sticky ethical questions, and its implications in society. Additionally, and in one of my favorite tangents so far on the podcast, Eva and I discuss how today's lawyers, in many ways, resemble the grain millers of hundreds of years ago. To quote Eva, In our current society, powers move from those who process material goods to those who process the contracts that govern all of us. As always, if you like our discussion, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Eva, thanks so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, I'm excited to be on here. So Eva, I want to start with your telling of your life story. It is an impressive life story, uh, and you've got a very impressive perspective on the legal industry and legal tech. But I want to start with uh, Eva. Talk us through uh, how you found your way into the legal industry. Talk about your interesting educational background. Uh, talk about how you uh, were able to start your company. Um, yeah, okay, sure. So I am from the suburbs of Philadelphia, and I um, graduated high school um, in 2013, uh, went to Harvard, I was class of 2017, but my junior year, I dropped out of Harvard to launch Legalist, and we got accepted to Y Combinator, which is a Silicon Valley startup accelerator that funded Airbnb, Dropbox, and, you know, it was there that uh, I launched Legalist, which is a tech-enabled legal asset manager. So we have about $150 of assets under management, uh, and we focus on uh, litigation and bankruptcy investing. Um, basically, you know, we use technology to source and underwrite uh, legal investments, and our technology enables us to efficiently invest in small to medium-sized claims, which are opportunities that often other funders in the industry will pass over. Uh, is that enough background on on myself? <laughs> that's, that's great background. That's a great overview. That is a uniquely yeah. Silicon Valley story, right? I mean, we often hear about um, the Harvard dropout, the Stanford dropout, founding companies. Uh, but I think I think a lot of folks are more accustomed to these folks starting companies that are, you know, like like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, social media or food delivery, right. something something more tactile, right? You started a company, and I want I want to get into how Legalist kind of came up, right? Because there were some pivots involved here, but you started yeah. a company in the in, incredibly, to most people, obscure space of litigation funding. Um, yeah. Strikes me very, <laughs> right. very, very interesting, very impressive. Um, 
How did you know, what did that path look like to you from um, having this idea, having a idea that ultimately would be legalist to then dropping out of Harvard and taking this as a, you know, as a Y Combinator caliber project, uh, raising funds, the whole entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, and you know, you're right. Uh, it is a bit of a niche type of company for your average undergrad uh, to go into. And, you know, we originally went into Y Combinator um, as a legal analytics company. There's even like an old TechCrunch article where we're launching and they describe us as a company that scrapes state and federal court records and aggregates them and sells the analytics to attorneys. So that's absolutely what we started off doing. Um, what we realized there is that, um, and this might be self-evident, but lawyers don't really like paying for things. Um, and they're also not highly incentivized to be efficient. And that's what makes any legal tech company so incredibly difficult. Uh, and why ultimately when the general counsel at Y Combinator uh, told us about litigation finance, um, we were uh, so keen to jump on the idea because we had realized that what lawyers fundamentally need is they need to get paid. That's their pain point. And litigation finance is a much better way of uh, addressing that. But actually, you know, on the topic of having an unlikely background to go into this, I do have kind of a funny story. This happened just last year. So just for some context, like I'm from a middle class family and we're the type of family that has like a plastic bag drawer and yeah. Um, yeah. save the rubber bands from onions and we put them on the neck of the stink nozzle for yes. reuse. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so um, I was 23 and we had just raised um, fund two. And we had a Swiss investor that we were going to go and visit. The issue is that I've never been to continental Europe before. And I wasn't really tuned into the fact that Switzerland has more than one city. And I'd heard of the Geneva Convention, you know, human rights convention, big deal. Yeah. So I thought Geneva was the only city in Switzerland. And so I booked my flight there and I've got a 9 a.m. meeting with this investor that's given us a lot of money to put into litigation. And then the night before, I realized that Geneva is like seven hours driving away from Zurich, which I didn't even realize was a city in Switzerland. And that's where the meeting was. Um, in fact, it's like so far away that they speak French in Geneva and German in Zurich. So I had to book a really last minute flight and go to the airport at like 3 a.m. So that's just the funny aside on my background that I it always cracks people up. <laughs> no, that, that's that's good stuff. Um... At what, at what point, I mean, you, you tell a story about how Legalist was originally a legal analytics company. And I think some people who've been following the legal industry for a long time might, might, you know, still kind of have it in their mind as a legal analytics company. But how did the fact that Legalist started out as a legal analytics company with all of the, the tech and the, uh, AI and the, you know, all, all of the kind of computing heavy lifting there, how did that inform its journey to litigation funding? And, and, and to what extent did that give it an advantage over your kind of uh, typical, maybe is the best word to use, or classic kind of lit litigation funding? And we're going to get into exactly what that all means. But to, to what extent was that pivot a kind of a core part of the, of the journey? Yeah, so we actually pivoted to uh, doing litigation finance very early. So it was before we launched at Y Combinator. That part, I think, was fairly early. But the technology that we built for the analytics platform is fundamentally the same stuff that underlies uh, our investment strategy today. 
in the litigation finance space, uh, most of the players that you'll talk to are interested in these very large cases um, rather than being, say, David versus Goliath. They are more like Goliath versus Goliath. And the reason that people tend to skew towards these larger cases is pretty self-evident. And those are a lot easier to source and underwrite. You only have to do a few deals to deploy a lot of capital. Whereas the deals that we focus on um, tend to feature a small company uh, who has had a contract broken by a larger company. And these are cases that don't really involve more than a few million dollars in damages. And so that's why our average investment size is only about 500000 And that's what makes our approach so different and why it's so important for us to have a technology underpinning in order to source the volume of investments that we need in order to make this small dollar strategy sustainable. Um, We need a a tech platform that allows us to essentially originate 10 times as many deals as everyone else and diligence them. Before we get too far along, and I think a lot of our listeners probably understand uh, based on the context of this discussion so far, what litigation funding is. But I would, uh, let me just ask you point blank. Um, in your eyes, from where you're sitting, what is litigation funding and why should people care about it right now in this moment in 2020 uh, in the legal industry? Uh, litigation finance is the practice of non-recourse investment into a lawsuit, where a lawsuit requires uh, investment to pay for legal fees. So um, I think I mentioned before, uh, lawyers are very expensive. That's sort of the the nature of the justice system today. And what that means is that without capital, many people who have meritorious litigation are forced to either abandon their cases or settle for less than the litigation is worth. And so litigation finance comes along and says, hey, I will pay for your attorney's fees. And if the litigation is successful, then you'll pay me back. And that's what being non-recourse means. If the case is not successful, then the litigant does not owe us any money. And of course, this brings up a lot of issues involving, um, you know, outside stakes in litigation and and all of these kinds of concepts uh, that that we're going to kind of get into in a bit. I want to go back to something you said, and that is that Legalist is focusing on a part of the market that before Legalist, there were your Goliath versus Goliath litigation finance firms. You're the first company coming in to tackle a different side of the market. In the Goliath versus Goliath side of things, how does litigation finance um, fit in, right? You know, I'm, I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, well, if it's Goliath versus Goliath, why does there need to be litigation finance at all? Sorry, that's the rest of the industry. That's what I was saying. Right, right. No, absolutely. But yeah, yeah. in the rest of the industry, right? Like in the yeah, rest yeah, of the yeah. Why, you know, why is that even a thing, right? Like, uh, I think I think a lot of folks can, you know, need your understand why a small company or maybe even a single plaintiff, right, would mm-hmm. need funds to pursue litigation. But why would some Fortune 50 company quote need? the funds to pursue their own litigation, right? Like what's the lay yeah. of the land in, in litigation finance before Legalist even came to play? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point. There are uh, small consumer cash advance companies and those have been around for quite a while. Um, and then you have the publicly traded companies in litigation finance who are essentially providing a risk mitigation tool for large companies. So that's what the most frequent 
uh, landscape uh, looked like before we entered. Um, I'd say that you have on one end these behemoth deals that are highly bespoke, that have very sophisticated counterparties on both sides. And then on the other hand, you have what look much more like um, payday loans or uh, direct lending to consumers who have personal injury lawsuits for a few thousand dollars at, the t- at a time. So that's what the landscape looked like. And presumably legalist is pointed at the middle. Yes, exactly. So we're trying to serve a segment of the market that is too uh, bespoke for true standardization, but is too labor intensive and high volume for uh, traditional commercial litigation funding. I want to talk about uh, in Silicon Valley, you know, the, the term that's used oftentimes is unfair advantage, right? Like what is the unfair advantage that legalist has over other litigation finance companies? Uh, I just want to read you an excerpt from an interview you gave to Above the Law about two months ago. Uh, and it goes as uh, as follows. It starts out with background on where legalist is and then goes into some of the kind of secret sauce. Right. But the quote is the following, quote, legalists just announced last week that we've invested in over 100 cases through 81 investments. We raised our first fund in 2017 and our average investment size is around $500,000, that is. The fact that we were able to reach this kind of volume is entirely due to our technology advantage. We are the first litigation finance firm to use machine learning and AI technology to source and underwrite litigation investments. Our technology enables us to efficiently invest in small to medium-sized claims, which are opportunities often passed over by other litigation funders, unquote. What is this machine learning and AI technology that you are speaking of here? And how does it give you this, quote, technology advantage that you discuss here? Yeah, of course. Um, so we have a technology, and this is the underlying analytics engine that we built back in Y Combinator, back in the day that we were originally packaging up and selling to attorneys. And what it does is it crawls 239 state and federal courts on a daily basis and looks for 1% of investment opportunities that are actually qualified uh, by our investment criteria. So that's just the original technical screening, but that helps us to eliminate a lot of problems that litigation funders run into. One, it's very hard for litigation funders to originate that many deals if you're doing it purely based on relationships. Two, uh, in originating deals, there is often um, a significant adverse selection where people will only give you deals that they have already decided are, are not worth anything. Um, and finally, three, uh, without any sort of technical screening, um, even if you were to originate a lot of deals, they would mostly be junk and would be too much work to diligence uh, on the back end. So those are really the, the three things that our technology does. You know, we source 10 times as many deals as the other litigation funders. We are screening them to make sure that we're not letting in junk. Um, and then our attorneys, we have six attorneys on staff do the final underwriting. But this initial screening from the 100 percent to the 1 percent uh, make a big difference in, in reducing the amount of time they have to spend on underwriting. And then finally, we're able to eliminate a lot of the adverse selection by deciding 
what we want and what we like in advance and going out and creating what we call a portfolio by design. So work me through the flow here, right? In layman's terms, um, you know, how, how does, how is a deal sourced by legalist, right? I mean, are, is it kind of an outbound strategy where you've got all of these, I think you said 239 courts and all of their dockets, presumably scraped, uh, you get a ton of data. And then at that point, do you kind of rank all of those and say, boy, this is kind of our wish list for potential legalist investments. Let's go out and get them. Is that how it works? Am I being too kind of reductive here, simplistic about it? I mean, how, how does the flow work? Yeah, no, that sounds about right. Um, there's 100 million civil cases filed every year. Um, there's about, I'd say, a, a million or fewer that we consider to be qualified according to our investment criteria. And those are usually staffed by fewer than 100,000 attorneys. So, and, and there's 1.3 million attorneys in the U.S. to give you a sense of, of what the actual scale looks like. So even if a case is coming to us through an attorney, um, we know whether it is one on our wish list uh, and two, uh, we know whether that attorney frequently transacts in cases that are similar to the ones that we are invested in. So it's a it's an entire system that is geared around the fact that we don't want to be uh, passive in deciding whether or not we like an investment and we don't want to be making investments um, purely based on what is available to us. What kind of metrics or data is that wish list based on? Like, how do you how do you decide what is a good investment? Um, I, and this question is really based on an objection that I'm sure that that you've heard. I, I've certainly read a lot about it, which is, you know, this data analysis and the use of AI and the use of you know big data, whatever whatever tech that you're using, cannot replace uh, you know kind of human intuition, right? Um, and I know there's certain you know lawyers and underwriters at, at at Legalist as well, but how how do you get around that objection? And what metrics are the key metrics that you look at to determine whether a case uh, ranks high on Legalist's wish list or or maybe is not on there at all? So I think a big misconception about this idea of using technology to source illiquid investments, especially in litigation, is that we're never going to be like a quant trader who says, "Okay, everyone else thinks this company is going to fail. My tech says that this company is going to succeed. And so it succeeds. By nature, litigation relies on human intuition. If you have a case that goes in front of a jury, a jury is a collection of 12 lay people. And if 12 lay people don't think that the case is going to be successful, then they're, the case is not going to be successful. So it's not anything that if you had a plaintiff's attorney look over each and every one of the cases we looked at, uh, it's not anything where a plaintiff's attorney would be like, wow, you know, they're really going after cases that I wouldn't go after and wouldn't think would be successful. In fact, it's the opposite of that. We are codifying a lot of the very intuitive knowledge that plaintiff's attorneys already do have. For instance, cases that survive motion to dismiss are more likely to be successful because the motion to dismiss eliminates a lot of cases. Um, another uh, refinement on that sentiment is there are certain types of cases that are very likely to be successful once it survives motion to dismiss and other types of cases where a motion to dismiss it fails to eliminate uh, the vast majority of cases, even those that eventually lose. Um, 
So motions to dismiss, for instance, um, are extremely important on statutory cases. Uh, in other words, cases that rely on some fine point of case law, because that's what the motion to dismiss is there to assess. Uh, and conversely, in contract or heavily fact-based cases where the pleadings don't really say a lot and aren't integral to the problems of the case, the motion to dismiss is not a very important indicator. So it's it's things like that, that if you ask any plaintiff's attorney on a one-off basis, they would be able to tell you that um, we have built into the algorithm that determines which 1% we decide to focus on. Do you focus on particular practice areas? You know, have you found that that could be a surrogate for success for a potential investment? Um, I'd say that a lot of our cases tend to be contract cases. Um, but as you know, since you're an attorney, contract cases often have other components to them as well. There's a lot of contract cases that have, you know, various claims attached, uh, especially if it's a kitchen sink complaint where they throw everything in there. Uh, but I'd say contracts are, are the most frequent disputes we see. You know, uh, frequently when we talk about litigation finance and you mentioned quantitative trading, the concept of money ball for law comes up. And I'm sure you might be sick of hearing this. Right. But money ball for law <laughs> essentially, you know, distilling the law down into a bunch of numbers and metrics and probabilities you know, batting averages, uh, you know, all of the associated statistics involving pitching, the legal equivalent for that, right? Is there and have you um, factored into your algorithms any sort of kind of Babe Ruth effect, right? Like, wow, this plaintiff's firm or this plaintiff's attorney just wins, right? This this person is a winner. Is that factored in or am I am I thinking of this wrong? Am I Am I way too granular? Um, I mean, there are certainly law firms that have good track records, but those are the ones that are uh, very wealthy and successful. So I don't think that there's anything majorly counterintuitive there as well. Um, what I do think is a bit counterintuitive about the way that the tech works is that um, it is not always determinative of whether a case is good for investment just because it's going to win. So there's really three components that litigation funders look at liability, damages, and collectability. Uh, looking at the docket only gives you reliable indicators for liability. You know, a case could win, but it could win $1 nominal damages. Or a case could win, but it could win only a specific performance. And those cases are useless to us. And then, of course, there are cases that go all the way through and get a judgment, and that judgment is uncollectible because the defendant goes into bankruptcy. So those are the things that our underwriters look at to make sure that we are actually making a solid investment and not just making an interesting prediction. What does the legalist team look like at this point? And I ask this question because I'm wondering when you go from this wish list, which is just you know purely algorithm based, purely database, to handing this you know quote file over to a human being presumably, a, a, you know, a, a, an experienced attorney and asking them, hey, uh, on liability, on damages, on collectability, is this good? Should we do this? Um, so we have uh, six attorneys on staff. We also have um, three engineers and sales folks. We have um, uh, we've got Robbie, who does marketing. 
And he does a lot of interesting data-based marketing uh, based on our, our internal and external um, databases. Um, and then we also have a lot of ops people. I think that ops people is probably the biggest thing that we need more of than other litigation funders do. When you're only making, say, 10 investments uh, using five attorneys, then each one can just track their investments. But we are making hundreds of investments into hundreds of cases. And that requires a lot of ops effort to make sure that we're staying on top of each one, that when they settle, we actually get paid back, that uh, all the necessary notices are filed, that the contracts are stored appropriately, and that the cases themselves are monitored. And if there's anything of concern, that someone from the legal team is notified immediately, but that the lawyers themselves are free to focus on underwriting new investments. So I think that the ops team is probably the disproportionately large segment of our team compared to other funders. Now, do, do the underwriters at Legalist essentially view investments in these cases almost like a plaintiff's attorney would on a contingency fee, right? What are my chances of prevailing? What are my chances of getting damages? And then, you know, as you said, the third thing, what are my chances of actually collecting? Is that the kind of model you use or is it different in litigation finance? Yeah, that's absolutely the model that we use, except that we have just one additional factor, which is that we also have to underwrite the attorneys because we are not funding it. So we always make sure that the attorneys we work with, they haven't been disbarred, they haven't been sanctioned, they aren't likely to um, have a problem later later down the line, because that's the factor that you can never anticipate. If you have the best case in the world and the worst attorney, um, you know, that is still the end of your case. And, and these, these deals, I mean, when they're, when they're sourced, to, to what extent do you, and by you, I mean legalist, get like the kind of hands-on sense of whether this is a good investment? I mean, are you meeting with the client or, and, and in this, in the sense, I mean the plaintiff, are you meeting with the attorneys? Are you, you know, reviewing all of the relevant documents. I mean, you know, I mean, I could see this being a rabbit hole, right? For each of these um, yeah. investments. I mean, you could spend like thousands of hours just assessing them, but obviously that uh, that wouldn't be a good business model where Legalist has, has created a very good business model. I mean, what do you, what do you do to, to evaluate these on the human end? Yeah, um, we get on phone calls with the attorneys um, I will flag that we are not looking at cases that are pre-filed. Uh, that is a big distinction between what we do and what the other funders do. Because we make so many investments, uh, we are focused only on cases that are already filed where alignment of interest is already very clear. The attorney and the plaintiff already indicated interest in this case prior to us getting involved. We're not here to spark litigation. And the cases that we do are usually too small for um not having money to even file the complaint to be an excuse. Is that, it could be, could that be a part of legalist future? I'm imagining that some cases that are meritorious where uh, the plaintiff would be on the right side of the law or the right side of, you know, ethics, it, you know, the, some of these cases do not get filed because they don't have a legalist backing them, right? I mean, are, are you, is that a strategic decision by legalist or, um, could that be something that uh, legalist kind of entertains in the future? You know, believe it or not, I actually do not think that that is true. Um, I think that 
it's very cheap to start a case. It's very expensive to finish a case. So most often when we get involved in cases, you know, they, there is a lawyer, the lawyer is a client, the client's very angry. The lawyer says, Oh, just file the complaint and they'll settle immediately. They file the complaint. There's no settlement. And now they're stuck in a, some sort of discovery battle and the fees just keep on accruing. And the plaintiff is usually a small ish company where even if they're doing well, uh, one, they've just had this grievous wrong done to them where presumably they lost money that they were counting on. And two, nobody sets aside $500,000 if you only make a few million in revenue to pay for attorney's fees. It's just never in any business's projections for the year. And that's really where litigation funders like us get involved. That's a great segue to where I want to go next, which is a kind of ethical element here where litigation finance fits into the greater legal industry. Before we go into that, what stage is Legalist in right now? You are from the 2016 batch in Y Combinator. You know, there, there's a number of articles online that our listeners can read about various funding events that occurred. Um, how big is the company in headcount? How much have you raised? It, you know, where where are you right now in you know September of 2020? Yeah, so we have about 20 something people. Um, we are not a traditional venture backed startup. Uh, contrary to popular belief, just because we went through an accelerator program, we are an asset manager. So um, we have about 150 million of AUM. Um, and uh, what that looks like is that just like any private equity fund, you know, we collect management fees and carry off of the investments that we make. And, and then presumably that is used to continue growing uh, legalists, continue to make make hires, et cetera, et cetera. Right, exactly. Is that the plan for the future? I mean, is there any intention or hope in the future to to make legal legalist a, a venture back company? Um, well, so we came out of Silicon Valley, uh, and the reason that a lot of tech companies are venture back companies is because there is the necessity for a lot of R and D cost in order for that tech to grow. Um, frankly, I think that our tech. Uh, does not need growth capital in order to realize its full potential. The thing that we need to realize our full potential is uh, the stuff that we already have, which is money to make investments with. Got it. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I want to, well, let me ask one more question on that. I mean, um, what is the current strategic vision of Legalist? I mean, are you, are you in growth mode? Are you looking to uh, like you've, you found this business model it's time to dial it up. Are you looking to add on various functions? Uh, where are you as a as a company right now? Um, well, certainly, you know, we are interested in making great returns for our investors. That's absolutely the goal. Um, right now, we're very focused on um, in deploying the money that we've raised thus far. Uh, and, you know, when we've deployed that and hopefully we'll have made great returns from our previous few funds, then we're going to go out there and raise another one. I mean, the growth of an asset management business is uh, still, it's still very desirable for an asset management business to grow, if only for employee retention purposes and being able to do more of the thing that you do really well. That makes sense. That makes sense. I want to shift now, as I mentioned before, to something that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are thinking, which is, 
you know, it, are there any kind of ethical pitfalls here? And you address that in, in another interview that you gave. And I want to read to you. I want to quote Eva to Eva here. And uh, the quote about, you know, ethics and where litigation financing fits in is the following quote. The biggest misconception around litigation funding is that it's not mission driven. By design, it is used by the financially disadvantaged party to get on an equal footing with their opponent in court. At Legalist, because we're focused on individual and small business plaintiffs, we see this systemic imbalance in almost every case we fund. And we want to do even more to address widespread social issues. How much, uh, you know, end quote, how much of the growth of Legalist, the founding of Legalist, was based on this, this idea of kind of this social mission that you discuss in that quote? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, to go back to this whole philosophical underpinning of the legal system, you know, we have a lot of lawyer jokes around the office that make fun of lawyers, but uh, everyone knows the hardest part of being a lawyer is that it's very expensive for something that should be a basic right. And that's not even really the lawyer's fault. That's just sort of how things are. A bankruptcy lawyer said to me once that uh, if a company isn't bankrupt at the beginning of bankruptcy, it'll be bankrupt by the end because it's so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah. And then Curtis, our general counsel, he always says, um, haven't you heard of the lawyer's golden rule? He who has the gold makes the rules. And uh, I think that that is pretty emblematic of the legal system in this country, unfortunately. Uh, actually, you know, Margaret Atwood, uh, the author of The Handmaid's Tale, has this really great debt uh, book on debt called Payback. And she spends a lot of it talking about lawyers. And one interesting argument she makes is that the predecessor to lawyers, at least in the public imagination, is actually the miller who runs the mill. And you'll notice that in fairy tales, the miller is always tricky. He's the one who, uh, you know, is hated because people come to the mill to grind their grain to make bread and they have to pay the miller. People hate them because they're like a guard to a basic necessity. I think the miller is the one in Rumpelstiltskin who says that his daughter can spin straw into gold. And back then, people used to make jokes all the time about the cheating miller, which is the equivalent to the lawyer joke today. And the argument that Atwood makes is that lawyers are the same way today. But it's just that in our current society, power has moved from those who process material goods to those who process the contracts that govern them. So because lawyers are now the gatekeepers for the bread of today, which are the contracts that govern uh, the movement of goods and services, there is a lot of expense that is associated with it that people resent. So for us, you know, we see our job as essentially paying the miller. You know, it sucks that people have to take their grain to the miller and pay them in order to grind their bread but it's necessary. And so in litigation finance, um, we are helping people to access the legal system, which we see as still fundamentally valuable, whether you dislike it or not, whether you think that lawyers are overpaid or not, it's still incredibly important for people to have access to lawyers. Um, and that's just our, our fundamental stance. And we try to fund smaller companies 
and individuals who have cases that we genuinely believe deserve to be heard in a court of law. And that includes civil rights cases, that includes employment discrimination cases, that includes police shooting cases. Um, we've done two or three cases where people who are wrongfully convicted and put in prison for literally decades. And in these instances, yeah, I mean, it kind of doesn't make sense that they have legal fees that need to be paid still. But that's just the way that our society works. And somebody has to pay the miller. And so the litigation funder comes along, pays the legal fees involved, and hopefully, if the case is truly meritorious, makes a profit off of it. And so that's why I see what we do as fundamentally very consistent with my system of ethics and a fundamental underlying belief in access to justice that I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this podcast share. Sorry, that was a very long-winded way of saying that I think litigation finance is very ethical. That was no, that was an amazing response. I love, like, I love that. <laughs> I love what you just said. I love like the your worldview on this. Um, and I, you know, I, you know, I learned something new every day. I had no, I, I mean, I, I remember the Miller from Rumpelstiltskin, but I, I forgot about, you know, I forgot about the role that the that the Miller played. That's so, that's so intriguing, and uh, certainly makes me, <laughs> you know, makes me reconsider. A lot of the relationship between the, the, the lawyer and the client. I mean, I, I think you're right. The lawyer is the gatekeeper to the justice system, right? That's fascinating. Yeah. You mentioned the, uh, you know, police shooting cases, some other kinds of cases. I mean, is, um, is social justice in your eyes or the kind of social mission and whatever you want to call it? I, there's so many different ways to describe it. Is that like an explicit part of, uh, legalist investment strategy? Like, we want to do good in the world, or do you find that in the segment that you are interested in funding, you typically just kind of naturally land on those cases? So we are a for-profit company. We're trying to make a good return for our investors, but the segment of the market that we have chosen, we naturally land on those types of cases. Um, and, you know, on the topic of doing good for the world, a bunch of our LPs are also nonprofit endowments that do wonderful things in the world and the money that we make goes to make their work very possible. So I'm proud of that too. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. So Eva, uh, I, I only have a couple uh, more questions for you, although I could talk to you probably about Miller's for another because <laughs> I'm finding, I'm just like, I'm thinking about <laughs> the, the story about the, about the Miller's more and more. And I'm certainly going to have to do some research on that, but this question pertains really to you, Eva, you know, over and above and or separate and apart from Legalist. What is next for you? I mean, you've achieved an incredible amount at a young age. You clearly have a very impressive grasp, I think, ethically, philosophically of what you're doing at Legalist. I think that's something that a lot of people would, you know, likely expect, right, from the CEO of a litigation finance company. What is next for you? Uh, what are the next five years all the way up to maybe your late 20s look like for you? Yeah, um, I'll tell you what my horror story is um, and what I don't want legalists to become. What I don't want us to become is I don't want us to become mediocre. And I think that uh, you see this natural progression with a lot of asset management firms where they reach this steady state 
Um, so, you know, let's say that you're an asset manager and you make great returns on a product. Eventually you scale up and up and up and then there's more competition and then eventually your returns become mediocre. And that's sort of the steady state for most firms. You know, they will scale up until they become mediocre at whatever assets under management level that is at. Um, so whatever Legalist is doing, whatever it is expanding into, I never want us to grow assets under management just for the sake of it and to become mediocre as a result. So I didn't I didn't start a company in order to just produce mediocre returns for our investors. Now, you mentioned uh, in a prior call, Eva, that you are, I believe, two years into a four year apprenticeship uh, in the law. And um, th- that is, if I recall correctly, so that you could eventually at some point take the bar exam. What is that? Yes. What is that? Yeah. About? What is it? Yeah. Uh, so Kim Kardashian is also doing this program. Um, uh-huh. So I'm in very good company. <laughs> uh, now, California has this program called the Law Office Apprenticeship Program, where you can study the law with a lawyer uh, and then take the bar after four years. And so well, why do you want to do this? Right? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I say this as a lawyer, right, who went to law school, took the bar exam. Yeah. You know, you're you're the CEO of a uh, of a highly successful litigation finance company. Why do you feel like you need to do this or is it just out of out of kind of morbid curiosity and interest? <laughs> I wouldn't call it morbid curiosity. I mean, I would love to be able to do pro bono cases. Uh one of our attorneys on staff does a lot of pro bono immigration cases uh in her free time, and that's something that I would really love to be able to do. Um, I uh, did a lot of criminal justice reform work when I was in college, um, and I interned at the ACLU for a long time. So I would love to be able to do more advocacy work uh, just on my own time. That, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. Uh, I've got one last question for you, Eva. It's the same question yeah. as pretty much all of my guests on the Modern Lawyer podcast, and that is, what are your predictions for the future in the legal industry from your perspective? Right. So this could uh, this question could attach to litigation finance. This could attach to the greater legal industry, could attach to, you know, money ball for law. But if you're looking out ahead uh, 20 years or so, what do you think is going to uh, be the kind of major change that we see in the legal industry or in litigation finance coming up in the coming decades? Uh, I think a key phenomenon that um, I'm sure you've heard from other guests already is that lawyers have always seen themselves as not just service providers. They have a whole system of ethics and professional responsibilities. And in some sense, the fact that they are one of the few remaining industries that bills by the hour rather than on a fixed fee basis uh, indicates that they see themselves as craftsmen in some ways rather than your generic service provider like your tax person or your accountant. And with the entrance of said tax firms, accounting firms into the legal industry, with the growth of in-house legal departments and this whole new field called legal operations, I think that the room for the stuff in law that is actually craftsmanship is going to become smaller and smaller. And you're going to see law change quite a bit in terms of what it encompasses as a result. I love that response. I, I happen to agree with the, the vast, vast majority of what you just said there. Uh, in that. <laughs> um, 
Eva, I really want to thank you for this. This has been an amazing conversation. This makes me want to read a lot more about litigation finance and all of the issues in it. It makes me want to uh, learn about the historical significance of Millers in fiction uh, and, and all of that. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com. Tweet at us with the hashtag Modern Lawyer. And check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.